I'm turning to Matthew 17 this morning, Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 24 through 27, the final chapters of Matthew 17. Let's begin there at verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, cast a hook, take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take and give unto them for me and thee. I often try to put a title on these just to kind of help us. This one is simple and there's nothing profound about it. But the story itself, the narrative, indeed, is filled with great lessons. I just simply titled this this morning, Christ Pays the Tribute. Christ Pays the Tribute. A bit of background into what's happening here is necessary. In the Old Testament, by God's law, the Jews, according to Exodus 30, verses 12 through 13, were obligated to pay a half shekel, which was being used for the service of the sanctuary. Uh, that tells us that in Exodus 30, 16. And it tells us that that payment for the service of the sanctuary was paid every year. Now, to kind of just give perspective, the half shekel in those days accounted for about two days' wages. Uh, so if you take two days of pay, whatever you do, you work a job, two days' pay is what this half shekel tribute is what this was. This was a payment based originally upon the law to be used for the service of the sanctuary. But during the years, it had been enlarged to have become a custom which really did not have a continuing support in Scripture. It was ordained, of course, in the divine law to be paid for each person to the Lord when the people were counted. It was called redemption money or a ransom, Exodus 30 verse 12 says. It was not a tax per se that was levied, but it was a religious payment of sorts. But it had grown into something more of a tradition, more of a custom in the day in which Jesus now is speaking these words. It's called tribute money in verse 24. Now, your translation might have the word money italicized. That again means that the translators added that for clarity. So it would be just as appropriate to read it that when they were come to Capernaum that they received tribute. This tribute money is, was not a required payment in these days. 
It was an entirely optional payment that was being collected. It was established by custom, had not been appointed by the law, nor could it be enforced. It was a voluntary annual gift. And only persons who were professed devoted followers of the Jewish religion typically would pay it. They were religionists in the sense that not only would they pay it, but they would make it known that they paid it. In other words, they'd pay the tribute, but then they would let you know that they paid it so that you were fully aware that we're paying this tribute. Now, the agreement of this particular sum is based upon what the requirement was in Exodus. So it had just continued. So they continued to pay what had been established back in the book of Exodus. This agreement, that sum, together with what Jesus says in this text, shows us that this was something, the same tax or the same tribute that was being paid in Exodus 30, verses 13 through 16. There are some commentators who take the approach that this was some extra tax that the uh, the Roman government imposed, but I do think we'll see this later, that that was a separate tax that was being imposed. And we actually see Jesus in the account when he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. That's a different tax. This is that religious payment or the service for the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the tabernacle that's mentioned in Exodus 30. So when we get to the narrative, we see that as Jesus and his disciples are traveling, that they come to Capernaum and they that receive tribute money, in other words, those who were the collectors of these half shekels. Now I want you to pay close attention here that they, they do not come to Jesus for this payment. They come to Peter. And they ask Peter the question, doth not your master pay tribute? Or in other words, does Jesus pay this tribute? They addressed Peter with a question that was not meant to just get an answer, but it was meant to ensnare him. It was meant to trap Peter as to whether or not their master was going to adhere to this tribute. Implying this. It's like asking a question and asking it, but saying behind under your breath, surely he does. He wouldn't think of not paying this tribute. We wouldn't suspect that your master, Jesus, would neglect to make such an important payment. A person such as Jesus, who is of such eminence and is gaining such popularity, certainly he is not going to exempt himself from this fee. Now remember, this is not a required payment. That's key to understanding this. So notice how the narrative goes on. Peter impulsively, quickly answers for Jesus and simply says, yes. He doesn't think to ask Jesus if he was going to pay it. He answers for him. Almost out of habit, he speaks for what the Lord's going to do. Or maybe Peter is speaking what he thinks the Lord should do. 
Peter might have in his mind's eye, he might have the reality that I certainly, I'm, I'm facing a difficult situation here. I don't want to be the one to tell them Jesus isn't going to make this payment because it, it may turn out badly for all of us. Remember, this is not a required payment. Peter just immediately responds and says, he says yes. But notice, Jesus doesn't let this go. And when he was come into the house, so Peter's on the outside, he comes to the house and Jesus prevented him. Now notice this interaction takes place and it takes place very quickly. This narrative unfolds. Uh, Peter so quickly answers for the Lord and says, of course he makes this payment. Peter probably, if we are thinking about this from a reasonable perspective, should have asked the Lord's mind on this. He should have said, Lord, what do you say about this? Instead of thinking he needs to answer for him. Or Peter could have simply said this, I don't know. Why don't you go ask Jesus himself? But Peter, as the spokesman, again, don't be too hard on Peter. Peter is so much like all of us. Peter impulsively answers the question. Peter, through many of the accounts, has this, at least appears to me, this desire to protect Jesus' reputation. He has this concept in his mind that says, I don't want to say anything that might lead someone to think negatively of my master. I don't want them to think that he would not do what people expect him to do. Now, I want you to keep that thought in mind because that's very important. I think what's happening in this narrative. What Peter thinks he's doing to help, he's really mis he's misunderstanding what Jesus is going to teach him. Peter thinks he's doing right. I don't think Peter has malice in his heart and I don't think Peter's trying to do something wrong here, but I think this is that impulsive Peter that comes out that says, I don't want them to think badly of my Lord. But yet, Jesus is going to use this again as a teachable moment in Peter's life. Peter answers with a definitive yes quite certain that, of course, Jesus is going to pay this. Of course, he's going to make this payment. He's quite certain of it. It might be said here that oftentimes it would be beneficial for us to listen to what Jesus himself says instead of what others, including ourselves, say about him. And I hope we understand what I mean there. Oftentimes, we are very quick to speak for the Lord and we're, we're quick to speak to even the lost about who Jesus really is. And instead of speaking what Jesus says about himself, we try to change it just a little bit so that we protect it so that our reputation isn't harmed or somebody doesn't think lightly or think wrongly about Jesus. It would benefit us greatly to speak what Jesus says about himself. What would Jesus answer that question? How is he going to answer it? And I think if you read this and you're honest with yourself, the answer he gives is very surprising. Because there's a lot of things Jesus could say. There's a lot of things Jesus could have done. But what he does is an absolute positive scriptural lesson for us today. But he's going to teach Peter along the way. Peter, of course, 
Bible says that he was outdoors. He comes into the house. Again, I don't want to read into the scripture here because it doesn't say it. But there probably was a, a part of Peter being human as we are who's coming into the house and he's ready to tell Jesus, Jesus, I want you to know what I just did for you. These collectors of the tribute money came up to me while I was outside and they asked me if you were going to pay the tribute and you can probably just see he's excited. He wants to tell Jesus, I've kept your reputation. But that's not how the story goes. <laughs> Jesus, knowing what took place on the outside, asked, Jesus, or asked Peter a very searching question. And I want you to notice the name he uses. What thinkest thou, Simon? He goes back to that original name that he's known by Simon. What do you think, Simon? And he's not just saying generally, what do you think about the world? What do you think about the weather? What do you think about what's happening? He says specifically, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Now, in Peter's quick reply, he had not stopped to think about who he was speaking for. He had not stopped to think about that he is speaking of the he's speaking for the Messiah. He's speaking for God. As soon as he's come into the house, Jesus begins with these searching questions. Peter has to be struck with the reality that Jesus knows what took place outside of that door. Jesus prevented him. He knew what Peter had been doing and he moved quickly to set his mind and his thinking about this interaction correct and to set him straight. Every one of us has a little bit of Peter in us. Every one of us feels that, listen, the gospel and the, the Jesus Christ, I want to present him so that I protect his reputation, so that I keep him, so that people think well of him. I don't want think, people to think badly of my Lord. But you understand that Jesus' reputation, he said about himself, is that the world is going to hate you and they're going to hate you because of me. Now I'm going to say this carefully. We are not in the reputation protecting business making sure that Jesus' reputation, but to a point, is the prime thing. Now of course, we should not allow people to speak poorly about our Lord. People ask me this question all the time. If somebody is using the, the Lord's name in vain or they're speaking poorly of the Lord, do we as Christians have an obligation to stand up for our Lord? I believe we do. I believe we should be bold enough to say, listen, and we, we can do this with love and we can do this with compassion and we can do this with calmness and say, listen, I would, I would prefer and I would please don't talk about my Lord that way. Please don't use his name in a profane way. But ultimately, what Jesus is teaching Peter is not about protecting Jesus' reputation. Any other person who would have come and done what Jesus did, performing these miracles, performing these works, men would have looked at that and said, this is a good person. This is a man to be followed just because of what Jesus was doing. But yet because he claimed equality with God, they wanted to kill him. 
Jesus never did anything to stain his reputation. But yet Peter now is going to get a lesson into what the role and what Peter should have done and why Jesus is doing what he's doing. And it's very clear what he says here. What thinkest thou, Simon? This is a question really making Simon or Peter the judge of his own actions. Sometimes with our kids, we do that. We ask our kids to consider what you've done and judge yourself. When you did that, what were you thinking? Or when you did that which was wrong, why did you do that? What do you think? He's going to let Peter walk through this in his mind and and think about what he's actually done. And Jesus gives him a most searching question. He says, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Now, Peter gets the question right. Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Now, You have to think about this from a standpoint of a ruling family or a ruling nation or a ruling president, right? The family of a king, the family of a prince, is always free from paying the tribute. They're always free from paying the tax. It's not imposed upon them. The tax, the fees, they're imposed upon the children or on the strangers, rather, the citizens, the residents. They are exempt from paying that. Now again, notice how he words this. Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own, that's key, of their own or of strangers. Now, Peter quickly answers that question, and he knows the right answer. He said, it's of strangers. And so Jesus clearly says that, okay, whoever the king is, whoever the king is, his children are exempt from that. Now, the question we have to be asking ourselves here, Jesus is using an illustration of earthly kingdoms to illustrate his heavenly kingdom. Jesus as the king, God as the king, It would be like saying, should Jesus pay this redemption money, this tribute money for himself? Should he make that payment to God for himself? Should he, who is himself the king's son, come under a required tribute to pay for his father? Jesus is using the example here that if this tribute money, remember what the tribute money was paid for. It was paid originally for the service of the sanctuary in the temple. Again, think. This tax was the tax that was being applied or the tribute being applied to the service of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the sanctuary, is about God. So when Peter said, sure, he's going to pay the tribute money, It's as if Peter is saying, yes, Jesus is going to pay the tribute money to his own father. But yet, in every earthly illustration, the kings and the princes 
And the children of the kings and the princes are exempt from that tribute money, yet Peter, in his impulsiveness, had quickly said, of course Jesus is going to pay. Wait a minute. Jesus is going to pay redemption money, Exodus 30, for the service at a sanctuary? He's going to pay tribute to his own father? That's what's at the heart of this. Now again, it may seem an insignificant event, but this is really pointing us to a great truth here. If the tribute money was in fact what we believe it was, being paid towards God, then his children, those who are his children, should be free to, from paying that. Now remember, neither Jesus nor Peter were bound to pay that tribute. Neither one of them were required to pay it. But Peter, because of his lack of understanding and wanting to protect Jesus' reputation, just simply says, oh, he's going to pay it. But Jesus is going to say a different reason why he pays it. So look at verse 27. And that, again, you know how I love these grand theological words, like therefore and but, notwithstanding. It's a pivot. Basically saying it's, it's foolish to think that I would pay as a child in the kingdom, pay my own father tribute money. <laughs> Notwithstanding. Lest we should offend them. The very reason that Jesus is going to make this payment is not because he was required, not because Peter was required, but it was so that he would not cause an offense to those who were collecting it. Now, this is going to get real personal in a minute, and it's going to get real meddling in your life, and I don't intend to do that. But the text does it. It meddled with me this week. It meddled a lot with me. Think about what he's saying. Think just for a minute, lest I cause offense to these tax collectors, these half-shekel deputies. I'm going to pay it. Rather than cause an offense, cause a scandal, and I think this is key too, we'll see this in a minute, and that's the end of it, once we get to the miracle of how the money's provided, look at the last four words of that verse 27. Jesus not only paid for himself, but he paid Peter's too. How gracious are these words when Jesus says, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. If the question had remained simply by itself, clear from any other circumstance we could think about, our Lord could have said, just on principle, He could have said, I'm not going to make the payment. But because Peter was so quick to declare what the Lord would do, oh, I hope you don't miss this, Peter had been so quick to declare what the Lord's going to do, even though he never considered the mind of the Lord, even though the payment's not required, he had, in effect, <laughs> by his desire to protect his reputation, now put it in a situation where it would compromise it if Jesus didn't go through with what Peter said he's going to do. 
Peter thought he was doing the right thing. But what would it have seemed? When Jesus failed to pay, it would have appeared that Peter made a false promise about what his Lord would do. Again, remember I ask us to consider this for a moment that Oftentimes, in our rashness and our impulsiveness to protect the reputation of our Lord, we fail to understand what does the Lord really say about Himself? Or are we putting more faith and more strength in what we think He would say, want us to say? This happens more than you think. We could use a maybe a crude illustration about the whole idea of how some people use Christian cliches to describe who Christ is. Instead of what does the Bible say Christ says about himself. We are, our churches are filled with Christian cliches. God never said many of those. Don't get, be, get cute about it, but the, whole, the, the obvious one is God will never give you more than you can handle. That doesn't come from Scripture anywhere. Not even in principle, not even in part. But yet, we take it to say, well, our Lord says, and how many times have we counseled people that way? Well, you're going through a trial, but understand, brother, sister, God will never give you more than you can handle. You didn't give them the Lord's words, you gave them your words. Sadly, because maybe we don't see that even in the affliction, we don't see even in the trial, God's hand is not removed from that. So we think God needs our protection. God needs us to protect our reputation that God couldn't have allowed affliction in their life. No, God, it's his kingdom. We're his creation. Peter's quickness, his rashness to impulsively protect the Lord, in effect, had put a situation now where Jesus now says, lest we offend, lest you offend, I'm going to make the payment. But make no mistake about it, he's not paying this because it's required. He's not paying Peter's because Peter's required to pay it. He's paying it strictly on the, the reason he gives there. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Peter would have been invoke, involved in a dispute. And Jesus here says, lest we offend, I'm going to pay not only the tribute for myself, but I'm going to pay the tribute for Peter. Now listen, anytime something gets too personal for us, anytime something gets to where, listen, I, I'm just going to do this so I don't cause offense. Again, I don't mean to meddle, but especially when it gets to what's in our finances, what's in our pocketbooks, what's in our purses, uh, we don't really care because we're, 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 we're very loving of that, aren't we? We don't want to give up with that. We don't want to say, look, I, be offended then. Be offended, I don't care. Where the right thing to do is, is look, rather than cause offense to the gospel, cause offense to Christ, just pay it and be done with it. There's nothing that'll, nothing that'll enrage us more than something that requires us to give something. Whether it's to give of, and again, I'm not talking about giving in the sense of uh, tithes and offerings. I'm simply talking about here Jesus says, listen, in order to keep them from being offended, this is what I'm going to do. Even though Jesus was not required to pay it, 
the wisdom here was to pay it even though he was not required. This manner of payment is very interesting how this happens. And again, I hope you see not only God's sovereignty and Christ's understanding here, knowing what Peter was talking about, he knew the events that took place outside of the house. He, didn't, he wasn't standing out there. But I want you to also see in verse 27 how he miraculously, by his sovereignty, if you don't think this is one of those amazing miracles, I mean, when's the last time you heard about the, the tribute money showing up in the mouth of a fish? You couldn't do it. And yet, he uses a miracle to provide the payment. Now think about that for a moment. He not only sovereignly provides the fish, but he sovereignly provides the shekels that's in the fish's mouth. It should go without, it should go, and with us very carefully noticing, Peter, a fisherman, <laughs> he casts the hook to catch the fish that has the shekel, the payment, in the fish's mouth. Jesus specifically says, here's what's going to happen. Peter, go thou to the sea. Peter's an expert on the sea. Expert fisherman. Cast a hook. Take up the fish that first comes up. And when thou open his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. He says, take it, give unto them for me and for thee. It is remarkable, the sovereign providential acts that had to take place here, which would have caused, again, we could try to, we could try to read into this, caused the shekel to fall into the sea in the first place, made the fish swallow the shekel, rise to the hook that Peter had put out to pay the tribute. Again, we talk about how remarkable it was in the Old Testament that God prepared a great fish for Jonah, right? This is a pretty remarkable miracle. All because Jesus says we're not going to cause offense. Peter, you speaking on my behalf... You didn't say the right thing, but I'm going to provide lest we cause offense to them. Jesus pays the tribute for his father's house. But notice, never in the point did Jesus do it in a way that was not according to his sovereign act. He pays it as a man, but as God... He causes the fish to bring the money. It's pretty remarkable. The piece of money that was in the fish's mouth was enough to pay for Peter and to pay for his Lord. So our Lord submits himself not to cause offense. Again, it's not the only time that our Lord is going to submit himself to forfeit something. We know that Jesus is sold by Judas for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Jesus willingly submitted to that. He willingly submitted according to the perfect timing of God as to when he would be taken. 
That 30 pieces of silver, blood money, it's redemption money, it's money that was, Jesus was, was, uh, uh, was bought. Yet, for whose sake? For whose sake did He do that for? For every sinner who's called upon His name. He gave Himself up. Look, in a day and age in which we're simply saying, I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to. What kind of offense are we causing to the gospel? What kind of offense are we causing by simply saying, I don't have to? Folks, sometimes, no, you don't have to. But for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of not causing offense, just pay it. You say, what are you talking about, preacher? It could be a number of things. But the point here is, is that Jesus, it wasn't because he was required to do it, in the sense to pay the tribute money. But yet Jesus voluntarily gave himself for us. And I love the fact that he says, not only is there money for you, but there's money for me. It simply tells us that there's a piece of money. Again, I'm not going to go off on this because I, I, I started looking at this and there is a whole line of commentators who talk about why there's only one piece of money and not two individual half shekels. There's just one piece of money. But that one piece of money was enough to pay for both of them. Jesus, what He bore on the cross, what He took upon Himself... He who knew no sin became our surety. He became our payment in order that you and I might be declared free. Matthew Poole gives a very interesting perspective on the responsibility of Christians. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I just I found this very helpful to me. He uses that theological word too, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them lest we give them occasion to say we break the law of God. That is the duty of Christians to yield something of their own right when they cannot insist upon and obtain it without a scandal and prejudice to the gospel and the concern of religion. If this were required in pursuance of the law, Exodus 30, verses 12 through 13, and our Savior had refused to pay it, the scribes and Pharisees would have clamored against him as violating the law of God. If it were required as a civil tax, they would have clamored against him as a man that went about to stir up sedition or rebellion. Having therefore first asserted his right and immunity, he departeth from it to prevent a scandal. There's an obvious lesson here. Sometimes it is a responsibility of Christians to pay rather than cause offense. But there's even a far greater and deeper truth here. The glorious freedom that you and I have in Christ. Jesus coming to pay the price for us. Christ coming to pay what we could not pay. Coming to pay what was required of us, but we couldn't pay it. You could not pay the ransom for your soul. You could not pay what it took to appease the wrath of a holy God. Yet Christ paid it all. He paid it. Not because He 
it was required of him, but because it was required of us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He paid it. Listen, Jesus took the shame. He took the reproach. He took the scourging. He took the mockery. He took the being spat upon. And He took our place in all of those things. Our Savior, in this case, chose rather than to offend, He chose rather to perform a miracle. The word miracle is tossed around way too often in our society. We use the word miracle to describe some everyday event. We use a miracle to say the ending of that game was a miracle. Now this is a miracle. The very fact he produced this piece of money, miracle. But the greatest miracle of all is the fact that Jesus Christ would die for sinners like us. And that somehow, some way, and any, any theologian still cannot fully explain how what took place on that cross, we can, describe the, we can describe what we saw, what we hear, what we read, but how that blood actually made the payment. Our minds can't get around it. But yet the Bible declares it was the only acceptable one. The ransom that was paid was the price that was paid with the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ that Peter writes about. Do you think at all when we read through the book of Peter and search in 2 Peter, how many thoughts must have come to his mind about what he had experienced with Jesus? And looking now back after all those things he had learned and now looking, cross has already come and Jesus is looking back, Peter's looking back again and he's remembering all these things that Jesus taught him. You realize after the cross, Peter was a different man. Not perfect, but he's a different man. Peter suddenly starts preaching Jesus as he is. Repent. He's not trying to protect his reputation. He's saying this is what's required of you. He even gets down to the point where he's preaching and said it is, it is you who crucified him. Before the cross, Peter doesn't, Peter doesn't talk like that. After the cross, he does. You see, we do understand that living in this world and the freedoms that we have, we know the biblical teaching. We have to obey God rather than man. We all get that. I hope we get that. There are things that we as Christians simply cannot do because it's a violation of God's Word. But not everything, and hear me clearly, not everything that we're fighting for the right to keep while causing offense, is worth it. You see, the reality is, is Jesus Christ did become an offense. But He became an offense on our behalf. 
Our Savior chose rather to die in our place to perform a miracle of salvation. And if you know Christ today, then you know He died for you. If you know this morning that Christ died for me, then you are counted as one of His children. You are in the family of God. But this morning, if you sit here and you say, listen, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is to be part of the family of God. The message is the same every single Lord's Day from this pulpit. It's not changed. It's repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to come in here next Lord's Day, the Lord's Day after that, the Lord's Day after that, and I'm going to try to put a new spin. It's the same message as it's always been. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and the Apostle Paul said, of whom I am, what? Chief. He will. Not one time ever has Jesus Christ cast off a single sinner who came to Him. He's never once said, you can't come. But sinners, week after week, day after day, in churches all over this world, continue to ignore the command to repent and believe the gospel. And yet that's the same command that we have today. Repent and believe. Folks, if you know Christ, I think we have a great responsibility to pray for those who have not come yet. And pray that they would. If you're like that father who had the son, said, I believe... Beg God to help your unbelief that you're struggling with and run to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word.